Woo. Thanks for introducing that song to us, Maggie and team. And hello once again. Hello. If you are a guest of ours today and you feel like there's a lot going on, uh, you should know this is our annual launch week, right? So there is a lot going on. Our adult education courses started this morning down the hall at the 915 hour. Our life groups are starting this week. Project Share is on our radar. It's a new sermon series. So if your head is spinning, know that it's not always like this. Uh, say hi to me or anybody with a blue lanyard on after service, and we'll be glad to help you become acquainted with the various aspects of family life here at North Sub that are just picking up now for the fall. Glad you're with us. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Okay. <clears throat> I'm pretty good at not overdoing it on football illustrations, aren't I? Just checking in. Because, um, like, every once in a while, right? But compared to how often I have a fo football illustration in my sermon and cut it before the final draft, I mean... What's an appropriate frequency? Karen Santelic, every how many weeks football should come up in the sermon? What's appropriate? Once a month. Okay. See, I think I'm under, I think I'm under once a month. Karen has spoken. Um, but today we've got one to start out. So um, who is this? Who is this? Prime, Deion Sanders. Okay. So legendary player, one of the greatest players ever, now a coach, but a very unorthodox coach. Just took over the University of Colorado. His sons came and transferred there to play with him. Colorado, they had a major upset in their first game two weeks ago. Won again yesterday. They're 2-0, the talk of college football in his first year. Dion is being hailed as a genius coach. But his approach to the game violates everything you ever heard from every coach you ever had since you were five years old. Okay? Perhaps most notably... Here's his take on team unity. Ready? Here's what he said about team unity a few weeks ago. I don't think you got to have unity whatsoever. you got to have good players. And then he elaborates. I don't care if they like each other. I want to win. I've been on some teams where the quarterback didn't like the receiver, but they darn sure made harmony when the ball was snapped. And he really means this. Like one time during preseason camp a few weeks ago, a fight broke out in practice, and he started getting on his players not for fighting. You know, he was getting on the ones who didn't jump in the fight. He showed the film to everybody, why are you standing on the side instead of jumping in the fight, right? Team unity, according to Dion, is overrated. What about in the church? Is unity among us overrated? Hear me out. Maybe we make too much of unity. Thought experiment. If North Sub had, uh, if North Sub found a nationally renowned, singularly gifted preacher and hired a world-class youth minister who was putting on events every kid on the North Shore wanted to attend. And meanwhile, the kids' ministry was still firing on all cylinders. Worship continued to be so skillful. It's just transporting us to heaven. How concerned would you be about whether all those staff people got along with each other? If you found out church leadership couldn't stand each other, but you could see that they were individually excellent at playing their part in the ministry of the church, would that be a deal breaker for you? 
or broaden the circle beyond just church leadership. How big of a deal is it on a Sunday morning if we sit across the aisle from a sister or brother that we kind of resent for the political opinions they posted on Facebook this week or for the theological convictions they made known in life group last week? In the Greek city of Corinth, 2,000 years ago, there was some of that going on. What I mean was that if you visited this church at Corinth, yeah, you would have been so impressed. I would have been so impressed, right? Corinth was the it church in a lot of ways. The best orators maybe of any church in the world at the time. Some of the most impressive displays of supernatural spiritual power happening on a regular basis week after week during Sunday service. But meanwhile... Tribes had formed within the church family, and people were identifying with their teens. What does God have to say to such a church? Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It's page 1011 in the Bible in the chair back in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is week one of our newest sermon series. We'll be preaching right through the letter known as 1 Corinthians in our New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul within decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the reason we chose to preach through this letter is because in the seven years that I've been here, we've given this one of our core values, healthy relationships, comparatively less teaching than the others. We believe here at Northsub that carrying out our mission involves discipling this church family and how to navigate human relationships in a God-honoring fashion, particularly because if the human community or the family of faith is like a fabric made up of strands knitted together, as you can kind of see in the graphic. Um, Which of us hasn't struggled with or been pained by a fraying of that fabric somewhere along the way? We've all experienced that. So 1 Corinthians deals extensively with how our human relationships ought to be impacted by the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so we said a few months ago, let's preach through that letter. As you're preparing to read along in 1 Corinthians 1, a few background notes to set the stage. 1 Corinthians is actually one of at least four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We've got two of the four. But the one we call 1 Corinthians mentions a previous letter that we don't have. We don't don't know it. And the one we call 2 Corinthians mentions yet another letter that can't possibly be 1 Corinthians because of how Paul describes it. So in all likelihood, 1 Corinthians turns out to be the second of the four. And make no doubt, it is a letter. And uh, it reads like a letter, and as is true in his other letters, Paul stays true to form. He's so intentional in his writing his letter openings, the first paragraphs of his letter, in such a way that they set the tone for the rest of what's coming. The themes he's going to cover, the necessary groundwork for the points he's going to make, you can already tell from his intro where he's headed. And when it comes to Corinth, Paul has gotten reports. He's determined now to respond to those reports in this letter. There are many problems Paul addresses. Most of the negative reports, though, have to do with relational conflict in the community. The fabric is frayed. It's not holding together as it ought to. The Corinthian Christians are not painting the picture Christians are meant to paint to a watching world. And so right from the beginning this morning, Paul is going to go right at that. We're going to walk through the first 17 verses of 1 Corinthians 1 today. We'll see that it consists of a greeting, a prayer of thanksgiving, and a plea. Greeting, thanksgiving, plea. So let's start at the top with that greeting. Verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me as I read. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, 
to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of, the, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't spend as much time in these first three verses as I'd like to, but right off the bat we can see here four implicit or explicit statements about the identity of Christians. And all four are extremely relevant to those of us who wrestle sometimes with identity-related questions. So four identity claims, ready? First, Christians call and are called, according to these verses. You see that? Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Sosthenes, our brother. The church of God at Corinth called as saints. With all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. We call and are called. And both of those correct us when we start slipping into placing ourselves at the center of our identity. Like when I start to think, I bet God is really grateful for me. That I raised my hand to volunteer to be on his team. Like I could have taken my talents anywhere, but I chose Team Jesus. God's like, no, 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 I called you. I took the initiative. But there's another manifestation of the same disease when I start to think, God got me off to a good start, but I got this now. I've been doing this long enough. I can kind of put it on cruise control. I know what I'm doing. This description of Christians is those who call on the name of Jesus. It reminds us that the Christian life is meant to be one of continuous recognition of our ongoing dependence. Right? Like we don't just call on him to get saved and then take the wheel ourselves. We continue to call on him day after day from everything from our daily bread to major surgery. Summary, our pride gets displaced in a healthy way when we recognize ourselves to be people who were called by God to call on Jesus' name. Second identity claim from these verses, Christians are sanctified saints, despite the fact we sometimes look like train wrecks. Paul writing here, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, those are kind of words we just kind of usually gloss over, right? But if you read through this whole letter start to finish, you come across all the division in these pages, all the rivalry, all the prejudice and even incest that's corrected on these pages. And then you start back over here in chapter 1 and read the first three verses again in light of all that. This is shocking to read Paul addressing them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus called as saints. He's calling the church at Corinth sanctified and saints. This church has some major problems just to make sure we get it. Here's how Charles Spurgeon described this congregation. The Corinthians are what we should call nowadays, judging them by the usual standard, a first-class church. They had many who understood much of the learning of the Greeks. They were men of classic taste and men of good understanding, men of profound knowledge. And yet, in spiritual health, that church is one of the worst in all Greece and perhaps in the world. Amongst the whole of them, you would not find another church sunk so low as this one, although it was the most gifted. We'll see that bear out in the weeks to come as we walk through First. Corinthians. But Paul's going to let them know, um, yet he calls them sanctified. He calls them saints. And I wonder if you would claim the title of saint. Someone says, yeah, you're a saint for that. Do you deflect it or do you receive it? If we belong to Jesus, it doesn't matter how rough around the edges our lives happen to be at any given moment. We are saints. 
We've been made holy, even though holy might be the last word that we would naturally use to describe our fumbling through life. And Paul can speak about the Corinthians this way, not because of anything great they've done. It's all because he sees them through the lens of the blood of Jesus, which has made them clean, holy. Do you know you're a saint? Third identity claim. A local church is one instantiation of something cosmic. Listen to how Paul words this. To the church of God at Corinth. Like there's a church of God and Corinth is one location where that church of God meets. Yet, of course, Corinth isn't the only place the church of God is gathering. Verse 2 recognizes there are people in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, the day has come that God's people have been waiting for centuries for. After centuries of being told by God, come to this one specific place if you're going to call on my name. Don't call on my name from anywhere else. The presence of God is broken out of the Jerusalem temple and taken up residence in his new temple, which is made up of all the Christians who call on his name. And so since Christians have spread all over the earth, that temple now fills the earth, and human beings are now encouraged to call on his name, not just at one location anymore, but rather in any place where two or three are gathered in his name. That's what Malachi 11, or no, Malachi 1.11 foretold would happen. After generations of the Lord correcting his people, trying to call on him from wherever they wanted, in defiance of his command, Malachi says, the day's coming when people are going to call on the Lord's name in every place among all the nations. And so Paul's reminding the Corinthians here, with all their celebrity status, all their impressive reputation, hey, this is much bigger than you. You're one location of the church of God, but people all over the world are calling on the same Lord that you're calling on. And here at North Sub, we think that's important. We don't try to distance ourselves from other churches in the area or bill ourselves as, hey, this is the place to go if you're sick of churches like those. And we pray for other local churches almost every Sunday. Because while we may be the church of God at the corner of Lake Cook and Waukegan, this is way bigger than us. The one church of God is meeting at other locations this morning too. And sure, they may structure their worship services a little different from ours or have different philosophies of ministry, but we're all wearing the same color jersey. And so we sincerely pray that other churches in the area will thrive. Those are our teammates. Fourth and final identity reminder. Many of us were unlikely candidates for inclusion in God's family. Next week's passage will go into detail about how and why God does this, but it's worth a moment of reflection even now as Paul tees it up in these first three verses. Think about it. Paul, the author here, a couple decades before this was rounding up Christians to have them thrown in jail, giving approval to their deaths. He thought Christianity was dangerous and needed to be shut down until he became a preacher of Christianity. And then Sosthenes, the one Paul names here as either a co-author or more likely as a scribe, he's almost certainly the Sosthenes we read about in Acts chapter 18, where he was the Jewish synagogue leader in Corinth calling for Paul's head. He, If you remember in Acts 18, he leads a riot to get Paul killed for teaching about Jesus in Corinth. But when he's unsuccessful, when the magistrate says, no, there's no case against Paul, the mob actually turns on Sosthenes and beats him to a pulp right there in the courtroom. We don't know how Sosthenes became a Christian between that moment and where we have him here in 1 Corinthians. But given all that Paul writes about, about loving enemies and caring for those who persecute us, it's not hard to imagine how Sosthenes might have come to be convinced of the beauty and the truth of the Christian faith. The point I'm making is Paul, Sosthenes, These are the last two people you'd pick to be writing a letter giving wisdom and counsel to a church of Christians. 
they were both opposed to, to the point of trying to kill Christians. But God so decisively called them to himself that they couldn't resist anymore. And so, friend, if you're here this morning, or if you're watching this sermon after the fact online, and you haven't yet come to find your seat at the table in this family of faith, be careful. You could be the next one that God draws to himself so irresistibly that you surrender to his relentless pursuing love. He loves you immensely. And when he sends his spirit to track you down, there's no hiding from his love. Many of us tried to run from him only to find ourselves captivated by who he is and what he's done. Way too much time on those first three verses. Got to move. Verses four through nine now. Thanksgiving. Let's take a look at it together. Follow along with me. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, we're reading these verses in light of what this church is up to, the flagrant dysfunction that exists below the surface in Corinth. You figure we're about to read Paul dropping the hammer on these people. Yet Paul addresses them starting with, I always thank my God for you. It's remarkable. Notice, though, what he thanks God for. Do you see that? In Paul's other letters, we get things like, I thank God for the love that you show to one another. Or in another place, it's, I thank God for how faithfully you're following him. None of that here. What's he say? I thank God because of the grace he gave you. Reflect on that for a second. I thank God because of the grace he gave you. This would be like if I prayed over my son before bed. I thank you, God, for the teachers who are so patient with this young man. For his mom who keeps putting up with his knuckleheadedness. For the Sunday school volunteers who haven't yet given up on him. See, it's not a compliment. Paul's like, thank you, God, for being gracious to these Corinthians who need your grace. And now he continues, thank you also for giving them a bunch of gifts, like speech and knowledge. Paul's going to share later in the letter, he doesn't care much for speech and knowledge, but those gifts are worth thanking God for nonetheless. And that's about what there is to be thankful for when it comes to Corinth. Nothing about them in the Thanksgiving prayer. All about what God has done for them. And it's about what God's doing for them in the past, present, and future, see? What God has done, the grace of God given, you were enriched, testimony about Christ was confirmed, and then it goes to the present, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Then the future, he will also strengthen you to the end. You will be blameless. How in the world does Paul have this confidence in their future? There's only one possible answer when you're talking about a church this diseased. Paul's confidence is not in them, but in the one who holds the future in their hands, right? The Corinthians' gifts, even though they don't lack any, aren't any basis for confidence. Gifts or whatever to Paul. Plenty of people impressed with their gifts without honoring the Lord. Paul's confidence isn't about gifts. It's about Christ as he models here. Notice, I'm just going to zoom out. Not that you can read this this small. I just want you to see the whole verse 1 through 9 and how many times Jesus' name comes up. Look at all the instances of Jesus' name in nine verses. It's almost laughable. It reminds me a little. 
of the time my friend and I, when we were in high school, we had a competition where we tried to see who could include the most commas in a paper that we had to submit. But they had to be appropriately used in this essay that we, had to, we were assigned for school. Um, it almost reads like Paul is trying to fit in Jesus' name as many times as he can in these nine verses. Right? And we might summarize the underlying effect of all this like this. Hey, you guys in Corinth <clears throat> who are divided with each other and puffed up with pride and obsessed with impressing yourselves with displays of power, this was and is and always will be about Jesus. See, Paul is about to jump in, in verse 10, to calling for horizontal unity. That's the main theme of the letter, maybe. But he doesn't jump right to that. Because he knows that if you try to manufacture horizontal unity as its own thing, it doesn't hold. So he sequences it here. First and foremost, you've been called to fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the basis for the fellowship that you're going to have with others, in verse 10, who are also called to fellowship with the same son, right? You were saved by his blood, shed for you. The person over here was saved by his blood, shed for them. The two of you then are on level footing at the base of the cross. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to understand Paul to be implying here that if the, Christ, if the Christians in Corinth can learn to see Jesus Christ at the center of everything, the other issues in this letter, as serious as they may be, they'll work themselves out. Finally, a plea, verses 10 through 17. Let's look at those verses together. Now I urge you. Now he's gotten into the exhortation part. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. If there's ever a time for a pointed finger in the face, Paul doesn't seem to think that this is that occasion. It doesn't read that way, right? He's making a strong plea, no doubt. But doesn't it read more like an arm around the shoulder than an angry accusation? Now, how would you summarize what he's pleading with them to do? Think about that for a second. It might not be what we assume it is on first glance, right? What's he pleading with them to do? I don't know about you, but I might expect Paul to be pleading with a divided church among these, along these lines. Hey, guys, agree to disagree. Find a way to get along even when you don't see eye to eye. Right? And there may be a time for that message. But that's not the message of this text, is it? It's not agree to disagree. What's this text plead with them to do? Agree to agree. Get rid of all divisions. Be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. 
wait, agreement? The same understanding, same conviction? Yeah. And it's not only here in 1 Corinthians. This is held out as a goal in Philippians as well. As valuable as other sorts of diversity are, and they certainly are, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, the fact is theological diversity is never presented as a positive in Scripture. It's never, hey, how cool is it, guys, that we don't see things eye to eye and there's so many different interpretations represented in this room. We never get that. Instead, it's, hey, work at it until you do see things eye to eye. It's think the same thoughts. It's teach the same teachings with the same level of conviction. And that takes work. It takes much more work than the live and let live approach. Right? When I was a high school teacher, I've told you other stories about my mentor who was in the classroom next to me, believer, 10 years or so older than me, unbelievably sincere, on fire for the Lord, right? But he and I had some dramatic differences in theology. And I remember him saying, and I'm 23 years old, Tim, I don't want to just agree to disagree with you. I want you to try to persuade me, right? I want to try to persuade you. It would be easy for the two of us to just coexist or just avoid talking about points of difference, but it will be more honoring to the Lord if we work at seeking agreement. And so we worked at it for those five years together. I'd jot a scripture text and a two-sentence argument on a note card and have one of my students carry it to his classroom. He'd send one back next period, right? Our students probably, I don't know what they were saying about us behind our backs. But he was right. My friend mentor was right. There's one Holy Spirit who isn't confused, right? So when you and I disagree, it's by definition because you're wrong or because I'm wrong or because both of us are wrong. Wrong in our doctrine or maybe just wrong in our emphasis. But the Holy Spirit is not telling two of us two different things. In Corinth, the problem had progressed beyond just that differences weren't being worked through in a healthy way like that. There is now open rivalry and camps forming with people taking sides. Take a look, verse 12. I belong to Paul. He's the one that planted this church. I'm a Paul guy. And somebody else, I belong to Apollos. He's a way better teacher than Paul is. Others, maybe. I belong to Cephas. That's Peter, right? He's the one Jesus called the rock and put in charge. And then there's this fourth group. Hey, I don't need the mediated experience. I'm a real Christian. Unlike you all who pay attention to human teachers, I belong to Christ. N.T. Wright says this passage reminds you of birds chirping in your backyard in the morning. At first you're like, oh, what a beautiful sound. Until you remember the purpose of their chirping. They're staking out territory. Like this is my spot in the tree. You stay away. And so with Christians, right? Hey, we figured out real Christianity over here. You stay away. Are examples coming to mind of how we see this playing out today? Some of you are more well-versed in present-day Christian tribes than others are, but let me give some examples from our day of modern-day Christians, how they might identify along these lines, right? Someone might say, I'm a Ruth Haley Barton, Dallas Willard, spiritual contemplative Christian. Somebody else, I'm an Eric Metaxas, William Wolfe, Christian nationalist. Somebody else, I'm a Mark Dever, Nine Marks Christian, committed to the purity of the church. Somebody else, I'm a Calvin Edward Spurgeon reformed theology guy. 
Somebody else, I'm an Erwin Lutzer, Moody, Culture Warrior. Somebody else, I'm a Tim LaHaye, End Times aficionado. Ooh, I'm a Tim Keller, Winsome, Intellectual Christian. Oh, I'm a Judah Smith, In Touch, Accessible Christian. Oh, I'm a Rachel Hollis, Jen Hatmaker, Mom Influencer Christian. I'm a T.D. Jakes, Bethel Church, Pentecostal Christian. Okay, one more. I'm the only Jesus guy around, it seems. I'm calling out like a lone voice into the vacuum created by churches without a backbone, pastors who mishandle the word. I belong to Christ. And that last group is often the most obnoxious, by the way, both in Corinth and today, right? Precisely because of their claim to stand above everybody else and not be part of a faction, right? Now listen, it's unavoidable that we identify more closely with some Christians than we do with others. That we appreciate some expressions of Christianity more than we do others. But the problem in Corinth is the same problem today, that these camps have occupied an outsized place in our hearts. Such that today, we have previously reputable Christian conferences that have invited in unbelievers to deliver keynote messages in support of their perspective, right? communicating that they're more aligned with an atheist who agrees with them on politics than they are with a Christian who disagrees with them on politics. It's outsized, our tribalism, in some cases, right? And so here are three major issues with Corinth's factionalism, according to Paul's own words. He frames them as rhetorical questions here. First one, Christ isn't divided. If we're his body, how can we be divided if he's not divided? Second, only Christ was crucified for us. Until somebody else pays the price for our sin, why put them on that pedestal? Third, we're baptized in Christ's name alone. Paul's like, I can't even remember who I baptized. I always laugh at that verse, right? Not that baptism isn't important to Paul. It certainly is. But he knows that what saves is what Jesus did on the cross, right? So only the delivering of that news, the preaching of that good news, not the waters of baptism, can bring about the powerful effect of saving us. So in this era of heightened factionalism that you and I live in, what do we do? I mean, I'll admit that sometimes I wonder if it's hopeless. Right? We've got algorithms pumping us the news stories that will get us most incensed, because that's how they make money. We've got a sense of meaninglessness that feels like it could maybe be filled if we had an important battle to fight against an evil tribe somewhere out there. We're more removed than we've ever been from in-person relationship with people from other camps. We're in echo chambers, statistically speaking. Our local churches are no longer our main theological influence. YouTube influences us more. So what's the hope that we could ever rise above all these factors feeding the disunity monster? As daunting as it may seem, I think our passage points the way forward. We seek agreement, one conversation at a time. We pursue unity wherever we can take a step in that direction. And we'll see concrete ways to do that in the coming weeks, but right off the bat, I think there are some tangible best practices that we could name even this morning. Like, what if, here's just a couple, what if each of us intentionally sought out an opportunity in the next couple months to break bread with somebody in the church who sees things differently? What if we resolve together to discuss points of contention 
when they come up in life group or growth group instead of just changing the subject and sticking with the things we all agree on? What if we sought to learn from those in different camps and engage with the best of their arguments charitably? And above all, what if we pursued fellowship with the Son, putting Him first, trusting that the closer I get to Him and the closer you get to Him, the more will be brought together. Our big idea today is this. Because the one who died for us is not divided, may our congregation be united in him. Because the one who died for us is not divided, may our congregation be united in him. I'll save my opinions on Deion Sanders' coaching philosophy for another day. But we can say this, in the church of Jesus Christ, unity does matter and is worth pursuing. Not at all costs. Not at all costs. This very letter will acknowledge that there are times when unity needs to be broken for higher priorities. But we're living in a day in which many Christians, like the Corinthians did 2,000 years ago, are really quick to press that eject button. Really quick to write the other person off and to ignore any piece of data that they might present that would challenge my tribe's position. So how are we doing here at North Sub with relating to people from different theological camps, people with different convictions. Um, just so you know, my read on the situation, I'm just one person, but I'm always telling friends elsewhere how thrilled I am that we're a low-drama church, that we're not making mountains out of molehills, that we don't have folks getting bogged down in the stupid arguments that churches so often get bogged down in. Right? I'm so grateful for that. That said... There is a wide range of camps, so to speak, represented in this congregation. I'm not sure everybody appreciates that. What a breadth of opinion there is on the secondary and third order matters of the faith, right? And in that is an opportunity, I think. It's an opportunity to glorify God by seeking agreement together, by sharpening each other, by working toward thinking the same, right? Not just coexisting with all of our different opinions, like working toward agreement all the while loving each other well and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. In other words, there's someone here this morning, you can be sure, that feels most at home in a different camp than the camp that you find yourself most at home in, right? And when you and I, when it comes to that person, may we not write them off or speak as though we're above them. Christ is not divided. May we not just agree to silently disagree. Let's pursue agreement. And may we not identify with our camp above Christ. Our fellowship is with the Son. And His blood is thicker than any other bond that might hold two humans together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blood of Your Son. That does bind us together. More than any political agreement, more than any... Uh, agreement on any secondary theological issue could ever bind us together. God, we all are on equal footing at the base of your cross, having been purchased by the shed blood of your son. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we transition to the time of enacting this unity in this ordinance called communion, we pray that we would do so with hearts that are fully engaged in what's happening here, looking to be united uh, under the blood. In Jesus' name, amen.